That's the sleepy sign. Hello and welcome to the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shawcross. Hey, I'm Kara Porboff. And we are two radical honesty trainers who are also parents who love to geek out on all things parenting through the lens of, of the work that we've been practicing for many years, which is the work of Brad Blanton based on his books and workshops called Radical Honesty and also his book called Radical Parenting. Yeah. So at a high level, what uh, for those that you know haven't seen an intro in a while or anything, for at a high level for us, what Radical Honesty is about is about uh, kind of a living, breathing, interactive meditation where we get out of our heads and into our bodies and senses in order to more deeply connect with other people, more authentically connect with other people, in order to free ourselves from any of the suffering that's caused by pretending and hiding and lying and withholding, and then to shift from being a, kind of a subconsciously driven reactive product of past experiences into a more consciously motivated, deliberate, proactive creator of the life we want. So for us, that's what radical honesty is about. And and what radical parenting is about is about parenting in a way that empowers our kids to know themselves, to love themselves, and to express themselves fully. So most of the work that we do is based books that are based in really trusting and honoring the child, um, having a lot of respect, respectful parenting, uh, respect for our children as autonomous beings that have a lot of innate wisdom and ability, not as like little pieces of clay we need to mold into our vision of what, what, what we want them to be. Uh, but just yeah, honoring the kids as independent, independent beings. And uh, we're doing something different this, this week. Uh, we uh, reviewed the class uh, Positive Parenting Solutions. What's the class called? Just the seven-step parenting success system. That's what it's called. Yeah. So Kara took the full class. I just kind of reviewed different pieces of it, and uh, we're excited to bring it to you. We're not going to go through and, and summarize the entire class. We're really just picking out um, some of our favorite parts. Yeah, and it's a little funny to me that I found this course on Facebook, which I almost never get on. Like once every six months, I'll get on Facebook. And I actually, there was an ad on Facebook for this online course that I probably saw, like kept seeing over and over again. And I finally paid a little bit of attention to it and realized that it was based on, it looked really mainstream to me at first and I wasn't interested and it was kind of expensive. I paid like over $200 for the, for the class. It surprised me actually. I it, It's very sleek and polished and organized. And I was doubtful at first, but there's some really good ideas in here. So it's based on um, Adlerian psychology, Al Alfred Adler, and um, also the, the book Positive Discipline by Jane Nelson it is also based on that. And um, I knew that I had read at least part of that book and really enjoyed it. So should we dive right in to yeah, some of the content? Yeah, let's do it. Let's so start with maybe step one. I have like, there's a workbook you can print out. There's like a Facebook group. There's online sessions with, I haven't done any of those actually. There's online sessions with the trainers. It's this whole kind of curriculum, very extensive. There's extra modules. It's really, you get a lot for um, when you sign up. So um, 
there's like seven steps in the book, but we're only maybe going to talk about the first three or four. And the first step kind of lays out the basic tenets of Adlerian psychology, which I do think fit in with radical honesty pretty well. The, the primary like foundational principle is that every human being needs belonging and significance. And that that's what our children are looking for when they misbehave. The course talks a lot about misbehavior um, because I think when parents are like reaching out to get help, it's not because things are going really well. It's because like we're having trouble and stuff is going on that we're not sure how to deal with. And I don't love the term misbehavior. I don't necessarily think there's any such thing as misbehavior, but like we know it ourselves when our child is doing something that we don't want them to do or that makes our life harder or that you know presents a challenge for us in some way. We could call it challenging behavior or, or whatever. But the idea is that children, when you know they're doing something we don't want them to do, that it's because they don't feel like they belong or they don't feel like they're significant. So she gives lots of tools. Amy McCready is the woman who does this, has constructed this whole program. She, there's tons of tools for like how to, in positive ways, give our children lots of love and attention and power and control and choices. Yeah, I'll just add that in the introduction, they talk about Adler had kind of three, um, three principles around, around, around parenting. Uh, and understanding children's psychology. And so the first is what, what Kara just said, that children's primary goal is to belong and to have significance. Uh, so to connect with people and then to, to have significance and, and autonomy. Um, principle two is he said that all behavior is goal-oriented um, in children. And children will use whatever means they must, they have to get, to get attention or belonging and then power or significance. Um, and then the third piece was that a misbehaving child is a discouraged child. Um, and so, yeah, to, to look at misbehavior as like a communication and, and get curious and try and understand uh, when your child is, is misbehaving. Yeah, and I don't really love that word either. And it certainly doesn't fit for, for my child. My child's only at this point 16 months old. So in my opinion, he doesn't misbehave. Right. And yeah, I, I was in another conversation. I also found these this group independently through through Facebook and took one of their kind of free classes as as a as a teaser to to pay for the more expensive classes uh, from Positive Parenting Solutions. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I got into a couple of Facebook groups through that through that training. And and I've mentioned in one of them that like if my child ever does anything that I don't like it's in my mind 100% my fault uh, and 0% his fault. And I actually apologize to him. So if he spills something, you know, I'll apologize to him that, that I had it there for him to spill in a place that I wouldn't have wanted it spilt. And uh, not as a way to beat myself up, but I like the dynamic that that creates with, with my child. And I hope it continues because in some ways, uh, yeah, in some ways I'd like to think of all misbehavior as just a, uh, you know, communication or discouragement that my child is feeling. Yeah. And I like that Amy McCready actually says that in, I forget which lesson it's in, but she says misbehavior is never a kid problem. It's always ha has a parent element. And 
one of the things I like best about this course is like, I think she's maybe speaking to a different audience than us. Like, I, I feel like more mainstream parents could take this course and actually change their mind about some things. Like it doesn't appear that all that like crunchy or touchy feely, you know, but she's saying it, it's not about the parent is right and the child is wrong and it's our job to fix them. She's saying, you can only control yourself. You can't control another human being. And what are what can you do as a parent to alter this? So one of the one of the things she talks about is um, ego states. So she talks about three different ego states. I think this actually comes from transactional analysis. Um, the parent ego state, which is like when you're kind of like in charge, you're like maybe you know giving directions. Um, she calls it ordering, directing, and correcting. And if you're doing a lot of that, ordering, correcting, and directing, that's most of what your interactions with your child are doing, like your relationship is not going to be so great. Um, and then there's the adult ego state, which is like non-emotional, just rational, like processing information. And the child ego state, which is more emotional, impulsive, joyful, and playful. So she actually recommends being in the child state more which reminds me of hand in hand parenting, right? Where like with, this has been my biggest like um, experiment in the last few months is like playing more, like in every way, like whether it's we're trying to get out the door or we're just actually playing and doing nothing else is like, how can I do less ordering, directing and correcting and be more playful? And it, it's, man, it's a huge, it's like mm -hmm. a total change. It's a huge change to know that I am still the adult. I am still the one who like understands time and like how long it, what time it is and how long it takes to get someplace and when we need to leave another place or whatever, or like, I know we're going to be hungry in an hour, even if we're not hungry yet. I, I understand these things as the adult and my child doesn't. But yet I don't have to go into that ego state of ordering, correcting and controlling. We can do it in a playful way. And I love too the idea that the play isn't just like a tactic to manipulate and control your child. The play is also a way of putting the relationship you have with your child first ahead of these, these kind of like short term kind of acute needs that you have in the moment. Yeah, thank you for saying that, because that's what it comes down to, right, is I know even as this, you know, like, supposedly radical parent, I find myself in this state all the time, ordering, directing, and controlling. And what's happening right there is that we're no longer in relationship. Like, I'm not seeing her as a full person with her own, you know, like, stuff going on that she's interested in. I'm seeing her as... Mm -hmm like an obstacle to what I want to do in that moment. And so, yeah, we, and, and that's where the power struggle comes in is where it's like, it's me against you and I'm trying to get my way. And rather than when we're in relationship, something spontaneously, you know, shows itself as, as a better way out of the, the, the dilemma, whatever that might be. Great. The main whole, the number one tool that comes out of all this psychology that she lays out 
is she calls it mind, body, and soul time. It's the same thing that in hand in hand parenting, they call special time where she says every day, you know, 15 minutes or how 10, 20 minutes of special time, mind, body, and soul time with your child where you are with the mind, body, and soul. There's no other agenda. You're not looking at your phone. You know, I find this so hard. Um, I'm getting better at it, but I st it's like a meditation. It's really, it's so good for me to be like, nothing else matters for 20 minutes. We're only connecting and she's in charge. It's child-led time. So there's zero ordering, directing, and controlling from me. And she gets to um, be the boss and tell me what mm -hmm. to do. Yeah, for, for me, uh, again, Karen and I are both uh, single parents. Our, 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 the parent, our other parent uh, has our child. In, in Kara's case, how much of the time? I have her five days, and she's with her dad two days. And I have uh, my child one third of the time. So for me, having such limited access to my child makes that mind, body, and soul time kind of easier in some ways. Cause it's like, I cherish that time I have with him so much that for the most part, I take most of the days off work that I, when I have him and, uh, we just don't have that much we have to do. So it's, it's kind of easy to, to be like this with your child, but when you, when you only have your child part-time, but I did notice that, uh, as I went through their kind of curriculum, the seven steps, they hit on so much kind of a lot of the same messages we've talked about in our past books from um, this next step, step two, um, gets a lot into like unconditional parenting <clears throat> and uh, really is aligned with, uh, sorry, what's his name? What's the author's name? Alfie Cohn. Yeah, with Alfie Cohn's idea of like how we encourage, best encourage and discourage our kids, you know, this idea of getting rid of like rewards and praise and incentives and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, as we go through these steps, uh, a lot of it was familiar to me from the books we've read in the past and will be familiar to some of you listeners that have heard previous podcasts reviewing uh, Janet Lansbury, Alfie Cohn, Magda Gerber, Elaine Maslich, Dan Siegel, Tina Payne Bryson, a lot of those same messages. Yeah. So do you want to jump into step two? Yeah, let's do step two. And this is the section that really gets into kind of the ways we do, we encourage and discourage our kids, um, rewards and, and play versus manipulation, that sort of thing. Yeah. So she lays it out really well, um, about how, how rewards and punishments just aren't effective. And there's a lot of people that think positive parenting means rewards and praise. And, you know, we know from all this research that they actually don't work and rewards decrease motivation. We think we're increasing motivation, but we're actually decreasing motivation, intrinsic internal motivation, which is what really helps us to like go deeply into things and succeed on a like satisfying level and not just for some external grade or sticker or whatever it is. And I, you know, we've like talked about this a million times already, but I just think that someone who actually really believes that rewards and punishments are important or necessary you know, could, could go through this module and be like, oh, I, I might need to rethink that. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of parents would argue that they do work, you know, that like kids love stars and whatever. And, um, and like these rewards and praise, 
a lot of these books do say they don't work or show data that they don't work as well. Um, but yeah, for me to, even if it did work to do it the other way, it's just like, I want, yeah, I want my child to be doing what they love doing. I don't want them to be just seeking my and other people's praise and approval. I want them to know themselves, love themselves and express themselves fully. And that means not, not making it about me and my approval, but like making it about them and the joy that they're having and, and the feelings that they get when they are doing whatever they're doing. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, maybe it depends on like how we define whether it works or not. Cause like maybe it works that a kid like eats their vegetables so that they can get a bowl of ice cream afterwards. Does it work? Because like the broccoli actually went in their mouth, you know, well, maybe, but it, it doesn't, I don't think it actually is working if they won't eat something healthful without something being promised something sweet in return yeah. Yeah. or or if a kid if you say a kid you've got to take like five more bites or something and then you can have your whatever well maybe they eat more but like that are they actually learning to eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full mm -hmm. so is it yeah. actually working if they force five more bites in their body when maybe they are actually full you know and this, this may be like a bit of a rabbit hole, but like I've recently gotten into a debate with one of the groups that I joined on Facebook through this class um, about like toothbrushing, which we've talked about before. And, <clears throat> you know, a large percentage of dentists, a large percentage of dentists will tell parents like, if they won't do it, you brace, you hold their head in a vice and you, you force them to brush their teeth. And it's a very common perception that that's, the way to go and the dentists support it and it's better than cavities and you know the pain of you brushing their teeth is nothing compared to the pain of them having to do a root canal and in some countries it's considered neglect if your parent if your kids have too many cavities there's just so many arguments where people are arguing against your child having any kind of like autonomy around around toothbrushing and yeah, maybe it works for you to hold their head down and for you to brush their teeth. And then eventually they, they realize, hey, they hate being, they hate having yeah. none of that autonomy and they hate that so that they'll do what you've told them to do. But what else are you teaching them? Are you teaching them first just to hate taking care of themselves in this way? Are you teaching them to hate brushing their teeth? Are you subconsciously teaching them that their body doesn't really belong to them and that it's okay for other people to, to control and manipulate their bodies? Uh, you know, what are the other lessons that your children are learning here? Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, my argument, yeah. and, and I think what's more aligned with this is, is we focus on autonomy, we focus on our children knowing themselves and loving themselves. And when they love their body, they want to take care of it. Uh, and yeah, we need to help them out along the way, especially when they're really young. But uh, yeah, th that just came up for me in, in this lesson, lesson two. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that kind of gets to the heart of it is like when the child doesn't want to do something that we think is important for, you know, health or safety or well-being or whatever, you know, how, what do we do? You know, and I actually, I don't think it is possible to hold down a child and brush their teeth. I would like to spare my child from uh, like a horrifying, you know, traumatic medical experience in the dentist chair, but I, I don't think it's possible to physically force a child to brush their teeth. I mean, I don't, maybe somebody else has found a way, but 
it's not possible with my child. She yeah. has to be, she has to agree. I mean, she will effing kick and scream and bite and chomp her mouth and there's no way. I mean, I would get pretty injured if I tried to do that. So I think that's the thing is like, I actually really like Amy McCready's suggestion about, she was like, it's okay if you don't want to brush your teeth. Um, and I'm not willing for you to have sugary stuff that's going to turn into cavities on your teeth. So you can, it's okay to choose not to brush your teeth, but we won't be, I won't be giving you any sweet teeth. Mm-hmm. Although kids will still, I mean, it's not just normal sugars, like starches, everything turns into sugars in your mouth. So she was saying like, just like meat and vegetables, basically. Yeah. And then a child can then say, well, I'd like to eat more stuff than that. So maybe I will brush my teeth. And maybe that's for older children, you know? Yeah, that is definitely for older children. And I don't remember if you shared it in the podcast or just independently, but I loved the story of, uh, of, you know, you were fighting with with Elsie Jane recurringly about her not wanting to brush her teeth, and, and it'd be better for you to tell your own story. But I'm going to try and summarize it. Uh, and and then one day, again, just focusing on the relationship, like ahead of the teeth, uh, you just instead of fighting with her, you said like, "Okay, now's whatever. It's six o'clock. Now's when we're going to fight about about brushing your teeth." And then, yeah. and then you just like played your role. Like now is tooth. I'm so mad at you. Better brush your teeth. Yeah. And then, and then once she like understood the game, then she could play her role. And then it was just all about the connection between you guys, um, yeah. and just kind of a release valve for that tension that had been building up. And a lot of parents have a lot of tension on this topic. You know, they've had traumatic experiences with the dentist. They're embarrassed of their teeth being bad. They, you know, we so often like live vicariously through our children in different weird ways. And so they're creating tension for their kids that wouldn't otherwise be there. Uh, Not to brag, (laughs) but uh, neither me nor my son's mom, I think, have ever had any like teeth issues. I've never had braces or anything like that. And my little boy has a toothbrush in his mouth three times a day. He loves it. You know, he loves brushing his teeth. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. And when I, when, you know, he has his toothbrushes and I have my toothbrush and he'll brush his teeth forever. But then when I use my Sonicare, he wants to, he wants me to use my Sonicare on him and feel the vibration and stuff like that. So I think kids, I mean, I don't have a big sample size, but I think when we don't create that tension and pressure, uh, kids are just naturally, you know, not afraid of it. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it stays that yeah. way for you. I, I think I created sort of a situation for me and Elsie Jane, because I, I just think by that time of night, you know, I'm tired. I, we weren't doing special time until recently. And nighttime was a time where mm-hmm. she had all of my attention, you know, and I was feeling, mm-hmm. I would get frustrated because I felt reliant on her that um, I don't get to have my like alone time, downtime until she goes to sleep. And so I'm trying to get her in bed, like with a quickness and she's wanting to spread it out as much as possible because we're having this like one-on-one time together. So mm. it's just not as much of an issue anymore. Now that we do, we do special time usually earlier in the day and we do special time right before bedtime. And, um, you know, of course things go a lot better that way, but I think I really made it into a thing that it didn't have to be because I would get impatient. Mm. I would get like, to me, I, you know, 
nothing terrible is going to happen if you skip brushing teeth every once in a while, you know, but there are times where, you know, let's say your child has to take medicine for something and they don't want to take it, but they actually have to take it and they might have to take it twice a day. And it's a dilemma. What do you do when the child is absolutely refuses, but it's something that's really necessary? Um, you know, so you can yeah. argue whether toothbrushing is really necessary or not. We, you know, that's something that I just want it to be a normal part of our every night routine that has no power struggle around it. So I'm more interested in like, why are we mm -hmm. having a power struggle here and what's going on and what can I do differently? We're really just addressing it with play now though. So, and I get that like, my mom was a dental hygienist and I'm like very thorough about brushing teeth and like a little bit, I, I, like you were saying, Tony, I have a little bit of an ax to grind about it. I'm like, we have to do this. And I really want to make sure your teeth are clean and I don't want you to have any cap. And so she can feel that tension and it's just ripe for, for her power struggle. Right. And I realized, you know, it's just not that pleasant for her to sit in my, my lap and have me with a toothbrush in her mouth and being impatient and grumpy. Like I wouldn't want to get my brush to my teeth brushed by me either in that state. So we're trying to, I'm trying to be really playful with her and um, be really connected with her and warm and silly and playful and make it a connecting experience. And um, it's getting better. I'd say like this, the, the TLDR, the summary for parents, and I think the like key to all of this stuff is focusing on the relationship first. And again, I get this is a luxury not everyone has, but like slowing down because it is that like desire to get her into bed quickly or to get the diaper changed quickly or to get the eye drops in quickly. Like it's, it becomes so much less of a power struggle and so much more of a pleasant experience for both of you when you can really take time, which again, I, I know not all parents have, but like, diaper changes. Sometimes my son Arlo hates the diaper change, but I've definitely found that like, if I'm just patient, like it's, it's not going to kill him ever to like even have a dirty diaper on for another minute or two minutes or three minutes. And so if I just like can be patient and like, Oh, was I interrupting you? You're really psyched about playing with this thing or, or whatever. And I'm not too rushed about it. Um, it, and I stay calm. It, it, you know, resolves 95, 99% yeah. of those issues. And same with eye drops. He had a clogged tear duct. And so we were having to do the eye drops for, you know, a year and he didn't like it. And then, and again, at the beginning, I felt tense. Like I felt like I had to do it. And like, I want to get the crying over mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. So I'm just going to do it as quickly as possible. But then when I really just slowed down and let him play with the dropper for a while and let him pretend to drop it in my eyes and I, whatever, it all just, all the tension mm. just kind of like mm -hmm. went away. So for me, it's that, that slowing down and, and taking, taking your time with this solves most of those That issues. what you just said is a perfect segue into one of the very next things in step two. She talks about take time for training and this works for lots of stuff and doing role play. So like what you're talking about with the eye drops, what's so fun is when, when there is something that feels important to us as the parent and the child says no, then um, like ask the ch asking the child to do it to me. Like, well, here's how, or showing on a stuffed animal and then they can practice on the stuffed animal and then they can practice on me. And then, cause a lot of it is just like curiosity, right? Of like, they really want to know how stuff works. 
And if it's less about this has to happen and you're saying no, so I'm going to force you. Instead, we can actually get really curious about like, well, look at like how, what it looks like when the drop comes out of the dropper and you squeeze up here and a drop comes out. Not that you can go like wasting all your medicine, but you could probably practice with water in an mm -hmm. eyedropper. And then it becomes like a sweet connecting thing of like being curious and learning about something. And maybe it's still not that comfortable to have drops in your eyes, but um, then we're there with the child saying like, yeah, what did that feel like? And there's a whole process around it where it's not just like, I have to get this done. And if you're not going to cooperate with me, I'm going to force you. Yeah. And she's talking a lot about taking time for training when it comes to like um, chores and contributions, which has been really big mm -hmm. for me and Elsie Jane lately. Mm -hmm. So she's five and a half and she's like, she can do a lot. Right. And it's, uh, I do fall into the trap of like, it's just easier to do it myself than to teach her. But then now it's like, she's five and a half. She can do a lot of stuff herself. Um, and so taking that time to like be calm and practice together and sometimes have it be a connecting thing of like, she loves to help me unload the dishwasher. Like she hands me the stuff and I put it away. Mm. And now she's starting to put the stuff away that's in lower places that she can reach. Or like she likes to set the table and I allow her to say yes or no. I'll say like, would you like to like help me set the table? That would be a really big help for me while I'm cooking. And sometimes she'll say like, no, I'm really busy, you know, with her play. And sometimes she'll just be like, yeah, I want to bring the plates and the forks and the whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And I allow her to say mm -hmm. yes or no. So it's not like a big pressure thing. It's just like, it's not a chore. It's not a like, um, it's not like a, you have to do this because it's your responsibility or we all contribute to the household or something. It's like, this is what's happening right now. And like, you're old enough to help. Like you're big, you can do a lot of things. You're really capable. And it's a big deal, I yeah. think, for them to get to that point where they are doing real contributions. And it's not a drag. Yeah, it fits with the whole significance yeah. and yeah. the belonging. It satisfies both. And it's of like, it needs. feels like a privilege. I mean, she's five. I'm sure it's different when they turn into like teenagers. It's no longer a privilege to unload mm -hmm. the dishwasher. But at this point, it's a privilege to like get to do grown up stuff and make a real contribution to like to our daily life. Yeah. It's great how this just reinforces stuff. Uh, and I don't need to belabor this topic, but it reminds me of what Peter Gray said about, about hunter gatherers and that humans, you know, that, that what we are naturally driven to play at and the kinds of games that kids come up when left to their own devices is, is mimicking this stuff. We, you, you see mom set the table every night. I want to play set the table. And yeah, if you make it a chore and a should, it's going to be a very different experience than if it's a, what, what children would do naturally, which is play. She talks a little bit about praise and all the research about how, you know, we think that praise builds self-esteem, but it can actually have the opposite effect where when we praise like intrinsic qualities, like you're so smart, it actually, um, it, it has the opposite effect of kids actually then become more risk averse and they don't want to try things that might be challenging because then it's like, well, what if, if I'm not good at this, does that mean I'm not smart anymore? 
versus um, using encouragement about the process and about the um, about effort. So she taught she there's a really great article that we can link in the show notes to an article that was in like the New Yorker, I think, or something that talks a lot about Carol Dweck's research. And she found that there's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset where if we're if we praise kids um, fixed qualities like you're a helper or you're so talented or you're so smart, um, then there's this becomes this mindset of like, I don't actually have control over being getting good at something. I just am or I'm Mm. not. And it's like already Mm. set versus the growth mindset of like, um, that it has to do with the process, you know, and that effort and um, the process of problem solving is, is where it's at. There's really cool research about what happens like when experiments where kids are given different puzzles and the ones that are told you're smart and a group is told you worked hard at that then they go on to the you're smart kids choose easier puzzles and the you worked hard at that kids choose harder Mm. puzzles pretty cool research there's more to it than that i'm just like summarizing great and that was that was important to me because i was labeled as like not just academically gifted, but like exceptionally gifted. And I hated it because I was like, I didn't do, I'm just being, I was just, I didn't ask to be born. Like I just am who I am. I'm not doing anything special. I'm not doing Mm -hmm. anything. I'm just being my normal self. And you're telling me I'm special. This isn't special to me. This is normal to me. And I wanted to be appreciated for something that I actually Mm -hmm. did, I guess, or something that I had control over. And I think that's what she's talking about. So if you had to boil down the, the advice that you got from this in any way that it's especially adding on to what we've already heard from, from Alfie Cohn and Janet Lansbury and whatever, how would you boil down the advice? To instead of labeling like smart or good or whatever, to use appreciation, like, like thank you for setting the table. That was a big help versus help. you're such a yeah. helper. And that goes back to like the Mr. Rogers thing, right? Where it's like everybody who's wet sometimes is dry Mm -hmm. sometimes. And everybody who's loud sometimes is noisy sometimes. So I think it's focusing on the specific action Mm -hmm. deed, the action and, and being saying, you know, she has this whole list of encouraging phrases where she's saying, this is encouragement, not praise and making a distinction there. I mean, I think it's kind of here. I'll read some of them. Um, you must feel, I don't agree with all of these, but she says, you must feel proud of yourself or like, um, wow, the floor is clean and the toys are all put away. So that's where this ties into radical honesty. I think where it's like noticing and describing rather than labeling and judging, you know, rather than saying, good job, you cleaned your room, like actually noticing specifically like, oh, wow, there were toys all over the floor and now they're all put away. It's so much more specific and meaningful than like, good job. Um, or like, it looks like you worked hard on this. Um, you, re- you really figured that out. Um, I trust your judgment. I appreciate what you've done. That's another like little radical honesty thing, right? Like we work on expressing appreciations and resentments directly. So rather than labeling 
something is good or bad, saying, you know, I appreciate you for bringing me that glass of water, or I appreciate you for expressing appreciation rather than um, the labels. Great. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like there's a Montessori list too of like approved praise, you know, statements that I think probably echoes this a lot, which is about like, yeah, I see you working really hard on that or something like that. Right. I liked watching you build that, those sorts of things. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's another one is describing how I feel. So like, like, oh, I feel so happy um, seeing blah, 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 or I feel excited or, and it could be, it could be other emotions too. It could be like, oh, like I feel really sad hearing you say that or, or whatever it is too. So we're giving feedback and we're in relationship and we're, you know, like, we're communicating without making anything right or wrong, but like we still, you know, are having an impact on each other. Yeah. Well, in this section too, also there's, there's so many extras. I mean, there's just so much stuff in here. There's a whole section on, on divorce and parenting apart and, and how to, you know, co-parent better. So uh, there's additional content that wasn't in the main uh, mm. step too. Uh, this is also where they had the um, the potty training one on one on 101 where they had I think her name was Jamie Jamie Glowacki uh, did a separate training just on potty training. Uh, I really enjoyed that. The, the I had I had heard through other things you want to get them kind of like familiar with the idea for a while and kind of like like a slow start where they just aren't intimidated by it. And uh, this woman's approach and she's you know renowned you know. Uh, consultant in in potty training is just to is just to just make the switch just like one day no more diapers and um and just like be patient for not, but one day you make the switch but it often takes two or three or four or five days um to just totally switch over uh to to no diapers so um yeah there's just a wealth of a wealth of stuff and it's all aligned with this this this, these ideas of honoring your child and knowing and you know trusting your child and 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 knowing that your child can do a lot can do more than a lot of parents think they can mm -hmm. and the age range by the way that they suggest is like 20 to 30 months old 17 to to 30 months old um is when they recommend the potty training which is right 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 about where where, where my son's getting right now yeah i'm interested in that i never um we never did any potty training, none at all. Yeah. We did it kind of the Janet Lansbury way of like, I had a little miniature potty in the bathroom mm -hmm. since she was probably one and she would just sit on it sometimes like a toy, like for fun mm -hmm. or she, like, she would sit on it naked or sit on it with her diaper or whatever. And, and she would then sometimes occasionally she would pee in it and then she would go back to diapers. And I was thinking, Oh no, how long is this going to go on? Mm -hmm. But I was just like, it, you know, she's going to just do it. And then she just, started using i mean she sees me go to the potty every day and then she just started doing it and then it was just done she didn't need diapers at night or anything that's the approach that 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 i had heard about before too but i really appreciated this this technique and again there's still no pressure but it means you're if you aren't catching them and paying like a lot of attention to them they say do it when you have like a three-day weekend where you can just spend every minute with them if you aren't paying attention to them you're going to get poop and pee on the floor and, and in, in pants and underwear and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm, I, I really liked it. She's had really good success and, um, 
and it seems really low pressure. And then uh, three is revolutionize your routines. Yeah, my favorite thing in this step three is that she says over and over again, um, we cannot control another person, even our child. Like every human being has free will and we're designed that way to want to have control and choice and power over our own lives and that we cannot control um, even our own child. We can only control ourselves and control the environment. This step is really good for me because I, you know, I'd rather not ever say no or like have to set limits or like have to control anything, right? I just want like us both to be free and, and do whatever we want. And, you know, unfortunately, like, Adult priorities are different than kid priorities is the way Amy McCready says it. And so, you know, we cannot live together in peace and harmony without some, like, without some negotiations of, around boundaries and limits. And um, so I think she gives some good tools for, like, it get, it, to me, it feels like a relief to give my per myself permission to say, like, I can control the environment. I can control myself. And that doesn't mean I'm controlling her, you know, but like if there's a food that I don't want her to eat regularly, but maybe once in a while, I think it's okay. I'm just not going to buy it and have it around because I don't want to argue about it every day. If it, if we're going to eat that, whatever thing, you know, three times a day. Um, or if there's a certain toy that happens to like have a hundred parts to it that ends up all over the house and she's not willing to clean it up you know, I can get mad about that over and over again. I could take time for training and like do some practice on, you know, how we pick up the toy, like, and practice doing it together. Um, or I could just put that toy away for a while, you know, not as a punishment to her, but as a way to take care of myself. So like, I think um, take control of the environment is so huge because it's like, we just don't have to, then there's, I don't have to direct, correct, control. I don't have to say no. I don't have to argue. There's no negotiation. It's just not there to argue about. Great. And let's see, control the environment. And then she talks about um, making a decision-rich environment. And I don't like love her wording all the time. Um, you know, I do, I do find her like a bit, a little not demeaning, but like a little bit, I'll think of the word, but it's like, you can have this or this, which one do you choose? And I don't think it has to be that artificial, you know, like if we go in the store, um, you know, giving my kid a choice might not be like, you can have this one or this one. Those are your only choices. Actually, she has like a million choices. So it's like, you can have one thing, pick whatever you want. That's like under $10. You can have one thing in this store and pick you, your choice, pick what it is, which I get can be like too overwhelming if kids have too many choices sometimes. But I think it's, um, you know, she talks about like, give your kid a lot of power and choice about stuff that you don't need to control, like what kids wear, you know? I, when, when she talked about that, I was like, oh yeah, you're really talking to a different audience here than like, <laughs> than us, because she was like, it's really important to let your kids pick their own clothes and they don't have to match. It's like, really? Are there people out there who like force their children to 
like who pick out all their clothes for their children and make them match and stuff. Yeah, I think there are some parents who think that like when they give their kids a lots of of choice that they're going to be like less obedient and harder to control in other ways so that they just kind of mm. keep that tight leash on whereas, you know, there is an argument that the more you pick your battles, the more that you, your children have power and autonomy, the less they lash out against it when when you kind of ha have an important reason to kind of take control. Yeah. And our rule is like when it comes to getting dressed, Elsie Jane can wear whatever she wants, but it has to be weather appropriate if she's going to school for six hours where she can't just like put on a jacket when she's getting cold. Like she has to have long sleeves and long pants if it's, you know, going to be 40 degrees and, um, and uh, stuff. So I do take some control, like when it comes to um, basically health and safety, that's what it comes down to. Like, um, or if she's going to get sent home from school because she's not, doesn't have the right clothes on that affects me and I'm not willing to come pick her up halfway through the day. So, um, it's like within these parameters, she can pick whatever she wants, you know? So that's, um, she calls it the decision rich environment. And, you know, sometimes she'll have these sort of artificial phrases like, Oh, well, if you didn't choose, then I'm going to choose for you and you can have another choice to choose next time. And I find some of her wording like a little pedantic or like, I would rather be a little more relatable in those moments of like, um, I don't know the exact wording, but like, you know, I, I see like you're having a really hard time deciding. Uh, I'm going to bring, go ahead and just get in the car and I'm going to bring these clothes with us. And there's probably something else going on in that moment. If the kid doesn't decide, I feel like they need special time or they need a tantrum or something, you know, if they're not just, if there's some resistance to just like choosing anything. Cool. Okay. Oh, did you get to the when then part? No. This was one of the, like, um, the things that at first I was like, I don't know. That sounds like a reward punishment situation to me, but then I've been, um, I've been kind of experimenting with it. So she says, um, she has this tool called when then that's like an immediate fix to a power struggle. So like, if you need your child to do something, like you're asking them to pick up toys or get dressed or whatever, and they're, they say no, they're not interested, then her strategy is you say um, when all the toys are picked up, then you can go outside and play with your friends or you can have screen time or whatever, which sounds like a reward and punishment, right? Like when you do this thing that I want you to do, then you get to have this thing that I, you know, this privilege that you enjoy. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's a little questionable. She does address that, by the way. She says, this is not a reward and punishment because she says for two reasons. Number one, it's, a, it's not a reward. It's just like a normal privilege that the child does all the time. You know, like it could even be like, oh, when you're dressed, then we'll have mm -hmm. breakfast. It's like breakfast isn't a reward. It's something you do every mm -hmm. day. And so she says, you're just controlling the order of events. I mean, I think it's still kind of, it's going to seem like a reward to the child though. 
So what I've been experimenting with is, you know, she makes it very much like a black and white thing of like, first you got to do the yucky stuff and then you get to do the fun thing. And we're just going to control the order of it. I don't love that so much. So I've been, but I've been experimenting with using this and it does really work, but I like for it to be just about the order of things. Like it could be, it could be the fun thing mm-hmm. first. It could be when we're finished with special time, then we're gonna, I don't know, get in the car and go to grandma's house or cause kids don't have a good concept of time. I mean, they're like right here, right now, this moment is all there is. They don't, you know, understand until I don't know what age it is. My daughter doesn't understand how long an hour is or five minutes versus five minutes or tomorrow versus next week. It's like that doesn't exist. So I I do think it's helpful to like put things in order and say sometimes it's just functional, right? Like when we're finished brushing teeth, then we're going to um, read a story and go to bed. Seems like a reward. But there's something very functional about it. Like we're not going to go snuggle up in bed and read a story and then get back up and brush teeth. And the story is not a reward for brushing teeth. We do it every night. It's just the order. We brush teeth first, then we get in bed and mm-hmm. read a book. So I'm experimenting with it. I don't know. What do you think? Timmy? I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I am averse to right now to like, pulling rank when I don't have to. So I think, yeah, when you're informing yeah. them and then I don't know if it's that big of a, of a tool other than just helping them orient to what's, what's, what their day is looking like. Yeah. That hasn't come up for me. So it's not a, not a significant one for me. Right. And because I pretty much yeah. just don't work or do anything when, uh, when my son is around me, um, I'm not in a big rush to, to, to do the next thing. And I like that he forces me to kind of just be more in the moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because that's where we can learn a lot from like not being so concerned about what comes next. And um, yeah, well, I'm going to keep like fooling around with this because it's, you know what I like about it? I watched a video once, maybe we can link this too. I'm going to make a note. There's a video I saw from a Waldorf person once, you know, in Waldorf education, they're really big about rhythm and rhythm in terms of like having a routine. And it's not so much about time, like this happens at this time, it's about the order. So like in my child's classroom at school, you know, they know that like, this was before they were completely outdoors, but when they used to go inside, you know, it was the same routine every day. You come in, you take your shoes off, everyone washes their hands, And then when you go in the classroom, the first thing they do is sit down at the snack table and then they know what happens during snack. They, they, you know, they light a candle, they sing a a song, they eat, they wash their bowl, they go play. They know the order, they know what's going to happen. And there's like no struggle, no resistance. They, and the kids feel like they know what to do and they're in, they're in charge of what's going to happen. And it's, um, not just about it being predictable, but it's about them being able to, to n- know what's happening and, and, and contribute. And like, I know that I'm, it's time to take off my shoes or put on my shoes. And 
I'm doing it myself or whatever. And um, that has to, it has to be really well designed so that it works, you know, and I don't know exactly the routine in her classroom, but I'm so interested in that because it's hard for me, it's super hard. And it's, I don't want it to feel regimented. So anyway, back to my point, I saw this video from a Waldorf educator that was like, here's what we're asking our children to do sometimes. If you're saying to your child, like, clap with me, clap at the same time I clap, and you're going like, and then you're like, why aren't you clapping with me? I just clapped, what are you doing? You know, you're not with me, you're not clapping with me. Versus, you know, if you have like a steady rhythm, and then you ask the child to clap with you, they can feel the rhythm and they can come along and they can predict when the next clap is going to be. And then we can do it together and move together. And that like changed, that shifted my whole mindset around like routines and rhythm from thinking, Oh, it's so regimented. And like, you know, I always feel get behind. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like, you know, like, well, what if it just doesn't feel right that day? What if we want to do something different? And I was like, Oh, I get that. Like, if I'm asking for cooperation from my child, it's not going to work if it's like something surprising and, and new all the time. So I'm liking this when then thing just as a way of like, she's old enough now to where if she does understand the order of things, it really, there's something changes. It clicks. It's like, she's much more willing to cooperate and she kind of, knows what's going to happen. So we're running a little bit short on time, but honestly, those next few steps uh, oh, yeah. aren't, aren't as detailed anyway. And some of them aren't entirely relevant to Karen and I's situation because yeah. like the sibling one. Yeah. And I didn't even get, I stopped on step oh. four actually. I haven't gone into the sibling Good. one yet. Well, what other, what other things you, what other were some of the other highlights that you wanted to point out or are there others? There's a couple more tools like real quick. So, also props to her for disposing of timeout. She has a whole like module on how timeout is like dumb and ineffective. And, you know, when kids are misbehaving, what they need is connection and not to be isolated and it doesn't work and it's frustrating for everybody. Um, and then one of her tools also that I really like, she calls it either. So she talks a lot about consequences, which we won't go into, but like natural consequences are like, your kid forgets their coat and then they're cold. Your kid forgets their lunchbox and then they're hungry or whatever. And like not intervening to save them all the time. Like once in a while, like you have each other's backs, but like not constantly stepping in to like prevent kids from learning, you know, like, oh, if I don't do this, this is what happens. And then the, she talks about either or consequences, which is, totally different than a natural consequence, but it's like, let's say I have real sensitive, like auditory stuff. Like I get overstimulated easily. So if my daughter's like really making a lot of noise and, and being rambunctious rather than tell her she's like being too loud or, um, whatever, it's like, Oh, either. Um, I don't say either, or actually I say, will you please, go outside, you know, and to play that game or find something quieter to do in the house. And as long, if I'm like actually calm when I'm saying that, 
it's not like any kind of reprimand. It's just like, I'm asking for what I want. Like, I'm totally glad for you to be like joyful and loud and, and run around. Um, but it's too much noise for me right now. So will you please go outside and do that? Um, so her wording is a little bit different, but it's like um, giving kids saying like, either you can stop throwing sand at your friend or you can leave the sandbox and go play somewhere else. Um, so again, it sounds like a punishment, but you know, I don't think it's a punishment. It's, it's like a, you know, I can't let you throw sand so you can totally play in the sandbox without throwing sand or you can go find something else to do. And it is, it does give them power and gives them some, some choice that's not, not just invented and fake. Yeah. Within those boundaries and parameters that you feel are necessary. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, good. Any, any other final thoughts? There's like so many, there's like 12 more things like we could talk about that I've been like really practicing implementing. And I would say that they work, they really work. And like, even if I put my own twist on it, of course, like we get real philosophical. Mm -hmm. I, one thing I like about a lot of the tools is that they're about taking action. There's not, it's not a lot of talking, right? It's not a lot, it's not like lecturing and moralizing, which I would say is like the number one, like kind of foundation of radical parenting is that we're trying not to moralize and be like, this is right and this is wrong and you need to learn how to be right instead of wrong. And that it's, it, there's, it's a lot of action. It's like in this situation, I as the parent will do this and then you as the child will have these choices of how to respond. But it's, there's, it's more action, less talk. And I think that's like so valuable because we try to convince our kids or like rationalize with them or explain to them why they need to do this or that. And that it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's frustrating for everybody. So that's like a big general takeaway is like, um, stop talking and take action. Well, thank you, uh, Kara. And uh, we'll provide some links to Positive Parenting positiveparentingsolutions.com uh, uh, below. Uh, we do recommend it. And yeah, for it's, it's, it's reassuring that a lot of these issues that we have, a lot of these, um, a lot of these techniques and philosophies around parenting that we have kind of thought of as somewhat radical. Uh, you know, this, this, this training shows that a lot of them are becoming more and more mainstream. Uh, so it is really reassuring and uh, yeah. yeah, we encourage people to check it out. Cool. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Tony. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.